You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring, unless you have a teeny tiny little span of attention. All right, but during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. So let's jump into it. Our guest today is Brian Eakin, an attorney now with the firm of Steptoe & Johnson. Brian, it is awesome to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Brian, let's tell our listeners a bit about your background, which leads me to believe that you are headed to the post of Secretary of State one day. You were Deputy Legal Advisor on the National Security Council for President Barack Obama, Assistant General Counsel for Enforcement and Intelligence at the Department of Treasury. Then you returned to the White House where you were Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Counsel to President Obama. And after that, you became the legal advisor at the State Department. Yeah, that is a lot. So, uh, some listening to this broadcast may not understand what part of national security law the State Department and the Treasury touch. But in fact, they are enormous international players. Can you give us a snapshot of what these agencies do in the national security space? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks to both of you. So, just to start with the State Department, which is where I was most recently part of the government, because virtually every aspect of U.S. national security has a foreign policy component, the State Department has very broad responsibilities uh, in ensuring that our country's national security objectives are undertaken consistent with our foreign policy objectives. And so, for example, the Secretary of State is one of the principals on what is known as the National Security Council. Uh, the, the NSC, as it's called, is the president's primary consultative and decision-making body on virtually all national security matters. Uh, and so through that uh, and related meetings and organizations, the State Department plays a key role in establishing U.S. policy on these national security matters. They may range from U.S. military and intelligence operations to U.S. law enforcement policy matters with a foreign nexus, to negotiations with foreign governments, to work on national security matters in multilateral forum like the United Nations. State Department consular officials also play a critical national security role 
through their work with the Department of Homeland Security on things like visa issuances. And then State's Bureau of Diplomatic Security has primary responsibility for protecting U.S. missions overseas. Can we clarify that last bit? When you talk about protecting U.S. missions overseas, what does that mean exactly? Literally, the people who are responsible for designing our embassies, for ensuring that they're secure, for either providing the security themselves or working with our military to provide security or local staff, that is the job of the Bureau that's known as DS at the State Department. So they're all, they are, to a degree, the front line of security on, say, our embassy attacks when there's an, a terrorist act somewhere, that kind of thing. That's right. They are uh, often the first to know about a threat, the first to be in touch with other parts of the U.S. government on uh, response, and then often in the front line on the attack itself, uh, unfortunately. And talk to us about Treasury now. What, is, what on earth does Treasury do? They do quite a lot, some of which I'm not going to talk about today, but they do have a broad range of national security responsibilities. That's that's where I'll focus. So the work I'm most familiar with at Treasury is their economic sanctions and anti-money laundering initiatives. Uh, These programs are important to U.S. national security and financial security. They're handled by an office at Treasury called the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, which handles economic sanctions. And then the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, uh, is responsible for implementing and coordinating U.S. anti-money laundering uh, initiatives. So that can include things like those designations we hear about under Section 311 of the Patriot Act? That's exactly right. So when a jurisdiction or a state or a, a bank or another company is designated as an entity of money laundering concern, under Section 311 of the Patriot Act. That's an action that's undertaken by FinCEN within the Treasury Department. We could spend maybe another podcast talking more about uh, Section 311. (laughs) All right, so State and Treasury, they both do things in the designation and the sanctions space. How do they work together? So they end up working very closely together in the area of economic sanctions, which is not to say they always agree, but they do work very closely together. They have complementary authorities in the space, So, for example, where OFAC is the uh, agency that has primary responsibility for implementing U.S. sanctions, they often turn to the State Department for foreign policy guidance on how economic sanctions programs should be administered. So, for example, in deciding whether to issue a license in an area that's subject to sanctions, OFAC will frequently consult with the State Department to ensure that the issuance of the license would be consistent with U.S. foreign policy. And when you say license, you mean giving somebody permission to do a discrete sort of type of business, some sort of a, a limiting permission where we're otherwise bearing down on a country with sanctions. That's exactly right. So let's say Cuba, for example, if a U.S. business wanted to do business in Cuba that would otherwise be prohibited by sanctions, they would apply to OFAC for a license that would authorize them to do business. And in the normal course, uh, OFAC would look to the State Department for foreign policy guidance. Would allowing that business company to do work in Cuba be consistent with our policy with respect to Cuba? Okay, but that's not the only space in which they coordinate actively in the national security interests of the United States. Talk to us about some of the other areas where they work together. Sure. So another area where Treasury and State work very closely together, is on investments reviewed by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is known by those of us who spend too much time doing this as CFIUS. Uh, So CFIUS is the body that's established by statute under U.S. law to review foreign investments for possible national security concerns. The Treasury Department and the Secretary of Treasury 
chairs the committee, the CFIUS committee, and state is one of the agencies that by statute is a member of CFIUS. So looking back over the decade and a half since 9-11, what would you say were the most significant uses of sanctions in furtherance of United States national security? In my view, two events really stand out. First would be the U.S. sanctions and really the worldwide sanctions against Iran. So although the United States and Iran were formerly military and economic partners, the United States imposed significant sanctions on Iran shortly after the takeover of our embassy in the late 1970s. But those were really U.S.-only sanctions. They were unilateral, by and large. In the post-9-11 era, the United States used sanctions against Iran in a completely different way. Beginning in the Bush administration and then continuing into the Obama administration, the United States worked with the UN Security Council and with key partner countries, particularly in Europe, to develop a multilateral set of sanctions on Iran that was really designed to bring Iran into compliance with its UN obligations related to nuclear materials. The U.S. executive branch and our Congress developed a breathtakingly comprehensive and complicated set of sanctions to further these objectives. And the U.S. successfully sponsored a series of sanctioned measures in the U.N. Security Council against Iran's nuclear program. In my view, these measures were in large part a success and what sanctions should be. And I think I would look to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, that the United States and other key partners entered into with Iran uh, two years ago as the measure of that success. So under the JCPOA, sanctions relief was given to Iran in exchange for Iran's commitment to a series of non-proliferation measures and initiatives that will last for several years. And to date, the United States, even under the new president, has kept up its end of the deal with respect to the JCPOA, and Iran has kept up its end of the bargain as well. Fascinating. So that spanned two administrations from different political parties. More than a decade involved Congress and the international community. That's a powerful tool. Yeah, and that's really when you talk to sanctions gurus, that's what sanctions are not designed to be punitive. They're designed to convince the other party to change its behavior. And I think here we have actual evidence of sanctions convincing another party to change its behavior. And there was a second event that you wanted to talk about? Yes, I think the other sanctions initiative were the counterterrorism sanctions that were implemented in the aftermath of 9-11. So the UN Security Council had created the Al-Qaeda and Taliban sanctions before 9-11, but the United States really led efforts to expand these programs in the years after 9-11. There have been a number of criticisms of these programs. They've lacked transparency, they've lacked due process, they've not been perfect. But in my view, they're a great example of galvanizing international efforts, really truly multilateral efforts against terrorism and terrorist groups. It's not always easy to find agreement internationally, even on who the terrorist groups are, who we should be focused on. And this is one example where the international community really came together in an effort against terrorism. And can you tell us more about the role that the State Department has in that CFIUS process? Uh, sure. As I mentioned, CFIUS's mandate is to review transactions that could result in control of a U.S. business by a foreign person, and in order to determine the effect of the transaction on the national security of the United States. CFIUS, as I said, is an interagency committee, and state is a member of CFIUS. So each of the agencies that is part of the CFIUS process is expected to bring its own expertise to bear in the process. State's expertise, of course, is foreign policy. And so the State Department often has a unique perspective on transactions that are reviewed by CFIUS in light of its foreign policy responsibilities. It may see the foreign policy consequences of a proposed deal that would have an impact on national security and in a way that none of the other agencies on CFIUS might necessarily recognize. 
place. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the division of responsibilities in the Constitution between the Congress and the executive branch on some of these national security topics. So, for example, on sanctions, well, we've seen both Congress and the executive branch take a number of critical actions in the area of sanctions. It seems, at least of late, that they're not consulting with each other on this. They're sort of acting independent. Looking at the two articles of the Constitution that give these branches authority, how are they supposed to work together on these sanctions issues, ideally? That's a good question, and I think sometimes the answer is that Congress and the executive don't work well together on sanctions implementation, uh, for better or worse. I think, as you suggested, both branches have some constitutional authorities that are relevant in this space, and they're expected to, to work together. Neither has exclusive constitutional authorities. Really, since World War II, presidents have devised and imposed sanctions under two very broad grants of statutory authority. Uh, so the original law, which was passed uh, in the World War I era, was called the Trading with the Enemy Act. Uh, the modern successor to that law is called the International Emergency Economic Authorities Act, or IEPA. So both of these laws grant the president broad authority to impose economic sanctions in furtherance of U.S. national security. And virtually every major sanctions program in existence today is derived, at least in part, from the president relying on these authorities and imposing sanctions under either TWIA, as it's called, or IEPA. Now, of course, by granting these authorities to the president, the Congress hasn't given up its, its ability to impose sanctions on its own terms. Uh, where it sees fit to do so. Uh, and so particularly beginning in the 1990s, Congress began to impose its own sanctions, statutory sanctions, on a number of countries that went beyond measures that the executive branch had imposed and in areas where Congress thought that the president should be doing more. This was true in Cuba, in Iran, in Syria, and in Burma. A number of laws were passed that went beyond the sanctions programs that the president, at that point the Clinton administration, had put in place itself. This trend has continued, and as you suggested, we've seen some examples of this even over the past few weeks. Now, is there anything on the horizon that lawyers and national security professionals should be watching out for? Well, sure. Just first to plug my own law firm for a moment, if you're a young lawyer interested in private national security law, you should definitely check out Steptoe and Johnson's website at www.steptoe.com. Among other things, we have a terrific cyber blog and a weekly cybersecurity podcast hosted by one of my partners, Stuart Baker. Yes, the wonderfully irascible Stuart <laughs> Baker, and the ensemble is uh, terrific, and you're a wonderful uh, participant and contributor to it. So you have Stuart on the one hand, uh, who tells it like it is, very directly, and then you also have the very avuncular Maury Shank, who really keeps up with what's going on in Europe <laughs> and is a delight to listen to. Well, thank, thank you for that, uh, and thank you for saying nice things on behalf uh, about Stuart Baker. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a blog on our website on international compliance issues like sanctions and export controls for those who are interested in more information on those topics. Uh, I, second, I would keep an eye on Congress and the work of the key national security committees, the Intelligence Committee, Armed Services, Foreign Relations, and Judiciary Committees. Uh, from reform of surveillance authorities to authorizations to use military force, these committees are currently and actively looking at a variety of very interesting national security issues. And then third, I would seriously consider a career in public service uh, working for the United States. It may be surprising to some of our newer listeners and more junior attorneys how many federal agencies actually have a role to play in national security issues and matters. 
when I was at the National Security Council, I had the opportunity to work with many of them, and that was really a thrill of a lifetime for me. If you want to be involved in these issues, there's really no better place to work than as a lawyer for the United States government. All right. So in parting, I want to shout back to the Young Lawyers Division of the ABA here, uh, and I want to ask some questions that I think might be of interest to them, or at least one, which is, Imagine that you're a young lawyer today and you're living, say, in Mission in San Francisco and you want to cultivate and develop a practice where you're advising startups on national security legal issues, which uh, startups should be thinking about. Tell me, what advice would you give me if that's the position that I was in? I would say two main things. First, I would encourage you to think broadly. National security means a lot of different things. And if so if you're advising a startup, you're going to have issues related to immigration and visas. You may have some expert from Iraq or from Syria who's really important to your company that you're going to have to figure out a way to bring into our country. You're going to have issues related to export controls. You may be wanting to put things on the internet uh, that could be available worldwide. And you're going to need to help your client figure out how to handle those issues. You may have issues with law enforcement raised national security concerns. You may have litigation issues related to national security. So don't think national security only means one set of things. And it's important for you to, to be thinking broadly on behalf of your clients in those spaces. Secondly, I would encourage you as a lawyer in private practice to actively think about consulting with the government on some of these issues. And I know that's anathema to many people. Why on earth would we go to the government <laughs> affirmatively to talk about issues of potential national security concern? And I think it's actually very important for the government to hear uh, the national security challenges that our companies, particularly our startup companies, are facing. So don't be afraid. You're not always going to get the answer that you want. You might not even get an answer at all sometimes, but it is essential for you to be advocating for your clients directly to the government uh, when and where you can. Fantastic. You know, it's been awesome to have you. We hope you will come back and talk to us about national security litigation issues. There are some very interesting recent laws that have passed, and I think that's a topic for the next time we meet. I would be happy to do that. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, today is... August 31st of 2017. It is two days after uh, an enormous number of sanctions have been announced uh, and a week after we began to hear about additional sanctions. And for that reason, we have invited guest Brian Egan to come back to give us an update. So, Brian, what in the heck has happened? What were the, give us some highlights over the last week. <laughs> it's, if you're a sanctions lawyer, this has been an exciting week uh, in the United States. Exciting month, I would say. Uh, so you, you turn back to the beginning of the month. President Trump grumpily signed a new sanctions law, uh, which imposes very significant new sanctions on Russia in particular, but also includes sanctions on North Korea and on Iran. Uh, this will make it much more difficult for the Trump administration to roll back the existing Russia sanctions and also expands sanctions uh, in ways that both the president and uh, some of his European allies were not very happy about, but he signed this into law. The week after that, uh, the UN Security Council uh, announced the most significant sanctions package it has done in probably a decade uh, on North Korea, where all 15 members of the Security Council, including China, including Russia, agreed to a huge new package of sanctions on all of North Korea's major exports. Uh, so coal, lead, 
uh, et cetera, um, which if it's actually enforced could really uh, hurt the regime's ability to raise money. And then most recently, at least as you alluded to, uh, President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin announced new sanctions, U.S. sanctions on Venezuela uh, last week. Uh, another very significant set of sanctions uh, that aims at the government of Venezuela's ability to raise money, either through the sale of oil, uh, through uh, other business activities. Uh, and so all of these things have created a lot of uh, excitement and questions and concerns in the world of uh, sanctions practice. Let's go back for a minute. So with respect to Iran, some of the sanctions were, were lessened during the last months of the Obama administration, correct? That's right. Okay. But but a number of sanctions, you know, a lot of sanctions, frankly, stayed in place. How did this change that exactly? It's interesting. The uh, the sanctions that remained in place, as you said, were what we think of as primary sanctions, sanctions on U.S. companies. Basically, U.S. companies can do very little with Iran. That didn't change in the Obama administration. It hasn't changed now. And what is what has changed is... The ability of the U.S. to impose sanctions on foreign companies for doing business with Iran. What Congress has done is added some additional categories of business activities that if you're a foreign company and you do, you could be subjected to blacklisting by the United States, basically. Okay. And then with respect to North Korea, um, you know, by the time this airs, uh, I don't know what will have happened, but we've had a number of missiles fired by uh, North Korea. Can you give us some yeah. sort of context for what it is that, in addition to sort of the general yeah. sense that North Korea is um, you know, basically run by a series of generals and there are no human rights and the other issues that we may have with them, what sort of prompt is this most recent activity by both Congress and uh, by the United Nations Security Council? There's been a significant uptick in the North Korea's missile program, their ballistic missile program. You've heard announcements by the U.S. changing our estimates of their capabilities. We actually think they're more capable uh, than we did a few years ago. The, I think the Security Council action in particular shows that it's not just a U.S. concern. This is really a global concern that their neighbors, China, is very concerned about this program. Russia is concerned about this program. I think it it shows the seriousness with which the entire world is taking uh, North Korea's activities, including its most recent missile strike over, over Japan that's been in the news the past couple of days. Okay, and then we've had a major uh, political shift, in a sense, in Venezuela. We've had some recent elections. Can you sort of give a recap here of the events mm -hmm. for uh, sort of our less initiated listeners sure. that have prompted these most recent uh, sanctions yes. by Treasury? So I think there are the elections, and then there are the elections in air quotes. Um, what had happened in Venezuela was the opposition to the current president, President Maduro, had achieved a majority in the Venezuelan uh, parliament. Maduro rejected this, instituted his own kind of puppet set of parliamentarians. Uh, they were put into office about a week, two weeks ago. The United States and many other countries around the world have objected strongly to uh, this move. Some will remember that President Trump at least implied that military action was one of the options that the United States might consider in response to this, which would be extraordinary. Uh, I think the sanctions response that we, we saw last week was pretty significant, um, but much more kind of within the norm of what might be expected. Um, and it's something that really U.S. companies are going to have to struggle with. Uh, banks, oil companies, investors are all 
impacted by our pretty significant economic ties with Venezuela. Venezuela is important, sort of the global energy sector, right? They are a major producer of oil and gas, are they not? That's correct. And some of the highest BTU coal in the world. Yes, uh, they produce a particular type of, of crude, in fact, that many of our refineries in the south have been retooled to process and refine specifically. So there's a particular relationship between uh, Venezuela crude production and U.S. refineries that uh, is impacting how our government thinks about sanctions in Venezuela. This is a perfect illustration of the challenges facing uh, private practitioners. So uh, I, I imagine that there are just tons of deals in the work when you're talking about what is essentially a petrostate like Venezuela. All these things are suddenly upended, changed. How, how does private practitioner manage these sort of vicissitudes of the geopolitical landscape, <laughs> but in particular as they pertain to sanctions, in this case, those that are decided by Congress, uh, whether or not their authority extends really that far, um, then you have the sort of Article Two, well-understood authorities, both from the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, how on earth does a private practitioner manage these things? What pointers can you give? <laughs> well, there's... One, one set of issues is when Congress passes a law, as it did earlier this month, what will the executive branch do to actually implement and enforce that law, particularly where the President of the United States has said, I think this was a really ill-advised law. And so for clients in the space that would be affected by Russia, North Korea, and Iran, you've got to say to yourself, well, what exactly will the Trump administration do to implement this law? Venezuela, where the Trump administration itself has imposed new sanctions, you don't have that question. You know that these are in effect. You have the Treasury Department already issuing guidance about what they mean, but the law is very complicated. And it takes a certain amount of judgment to figure out, do I need to go to the Treasury Department to seek guidance? Is this something that should be off limits? Is this something that I can feel pretty comfortable I can defend going forward, even if I were questioned by the Treasury Department? Uh, So these are the exciting times for sanctions practitioners, uh, anxious times for the business people involved in the the deals that we're advising on. And it, it, uh, while some sort of administrative ruling or guidance out of the Treasury Department, it it may not have the effect of law. It's once you get that, if you make the wrong decision, kind of stuck with it. So that's part of the balancing act as well, is it not? That's right. That's right. There's definitely a part of that. And uh, Treasury, I think, is trying its best to put out guidance to answer questions. They've already put out uh, frequently asked questions on Venezuela. They put about the same day the sanctions came out, actually kind of knowing that these would raise a lot of questions. But uh, I can tell you that there are many, many other questions that have uh, don't have clear answers. This may sound like an obvious question to somebody <laughs> such as yourself, but for people starting out in this area, uh, they may not be aware of the fact that many of these agencies will actually send email alerts. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, Treasury uh, puts out almost real-time alerts when new sanctions come out, when new enforcement actions come out, when new licenses are issued. Uh, So one thing, if you're really interested in this topic, is you can sign up for OFAC's email lists uh, and get your own up-to-date take on what's going on in the U.S. and sanctions. And I believe they provide some sort of an annual program. They do a good job of public outreach. They appear at a lot of conferences around town and elsewhere in the country and actually internationally. 
so there are good places to hear from OFAC outside of just their official publications. So you remember that, you know, I posited a hypothetical to you when we spoke back <laughs> a month ago. <laughs> Uh, when we talk about that young lawyer who might be living a mission, trying to represent startups, trying to get sort of up to speed on all these various things, perhaps some of those readily available real-time resources might be a good place to start. Uh, What other things, particularly in light of this most recent sort of parade of events, um, might you suggest would keep someone current, would keep them sort of on their toes as they are building a practice in this area when they're not uh, quite to the level that you are yet? I am a big fan of the primary resources, Elisa, as you referenced. So I, I don't think there's anything better as a lawyer than getting your head around the law itself, the executive order, the statute, the regulations. And I think that's where you should start, uh, even when you're starting out. And it's going to look confusing, but working through those things, uh, it's just invaluable. And it's what practitioners do all the time. There are also a number of very good uh, free secondary sources that are out there. Many law firms that practice in sanctions put out pretty close to real-time advisories when there are significant events. My law firm, Steptoe & Johnson, has a blog that we update on an almost daily basis with uh, sanctions news of the day and other uh, int- uh, news of interest. Uh, so I recommend kind of looking into what some of the law firms do to keep people up to date in this space, too. All right. Now, given what has happened in the last three to four weeks... Do you have any predictions, any thoughts about what we might expect in the next four weeks? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Well, on all those topics, there are interesting spaces to watch. So start with Iran. The president has already said he believes that Iran is out of compliance with the deal that it entered into on its nuclear program, which could lead to additional sanctions. So in September and October, the president's got to make some big decisions in that space under the terms of the relevant uh, law and the deal itself. North Korea, the U.S. has said, we are going to hold companies accountable who continue to do business with North Korea. So you could see additional sanctions against foreign companies who are supporting North Korea. Venezuela, uh, the government has been very clear that we're not done, uh, that there could be more. Uh, so more to follow in that space as well. I think uh, in, in all of these things, driven by world political events, uh, you could see additional sanctions. And that's one of the most interesting thing about sanctions practices. They really do follow what's going on in the news every day on the national security and foreign policy space. And as we sit here today, we have closed or requested that the Russians close uh, three consulate facilities here in the United States. Does that portend anything, do you think? I think it's fascinating that it's the Trump administration, maybe their strongest uh, signal yet, that they are not going to sit back as Russia purports to retaliate for the things the United States has done against it. Uh, And so it may suggest that the administration itself may become more aggressive on Russia's sanctions, uh, among other things. Okay, well, we've had the sort of perfect confluence of events to illustrate the challenges uh, that are faced in a sanctions practice, uh, and we really appreciate you coming back. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, keep, keep watching the news. Thank you, Brian, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. So right now, if you're sitting there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're certain you need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D, and you want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you cannot talk about with your in-laws, 
Then join us again next time for the National Security Law Today podcast, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember, the annual review of the Field of National Security Law Conference is coming up November 16th and 17th. Find us online for more information about this event. We hope to see you there. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll be back to you in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.